Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode of Bookmarked is brought to you by Libro FM. Get two books for the price of one with your first month of membership using the code BOOKSTACKED. Again, use promo code BOOKSTACKED when you start your membership at Libro.fm. Or check the show notes for a quick link to get started. Offer only valid for new members in the US and Canada. And welcome to the Bookmark Podcast. My name is Chelsea Regan, and I'm a feature writer at Bookstacked. Today, we'll be talking with author Natalie May. If you read her first book, The Kinder Poison, and you've been anxiously waiting to find out what comes next, you're going to love her newest book, The Cruelest Mercy. Coming out on June 15th, it's filled with just as much excitement, unexpected twists, and genuinely hilarious commentary as the first. And I'm so excited to have Natalie here to talk all about it. So let's get started. Hey, Natalie. Thanks so much for being here. I am so ready to chat with you about your new book. Thanks, Chelsea, so much for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. Great. So I wanted to start off with, for our listeners who maybe haven't read The Kinder Poison, could you give them just a general sense of the story and the main characters? Yeah. So The Kinder Poison is a fantasy adventure about a teenage girl who's chosen to be the human sacrifice in a harrowing race across the desert between the king's three heirs. Whoever finishes first and takes the life of the human sacrifice wins the throne. Our unfortunate sacrifice is Zaru, a stable girl who dreams of going on a fantastic adventure like she hears in the stories from travelers who pass through her father's stable. And she and her friend figure out a way to sneak into the banquet where the heirs are going to choose their teammates. They just want to have a fantastic night of fun. They just want to see the food. But the girl has the worst sense of luck. And she also says a lot of what's on her mind, no filter, whether she should or not. And both of these combine to get her chosen as the human sacrifice. Then there is Costa, the eldest prince, who's rather ruthless and will do anything he needs to to win the crown. But you find out through the course of the book that the throne isn't truly what he's after and that there's more to why he so desperately needs to win than meets the eye. We also have Jet, the second prince, who's popular and charismatic and seems to be the perfect choice for ruler except he doesn't want to rule and is actually planning to desert the race. And finally, there's Sakira, the third and the youngest, who's a troublemaker and a party girl. But you also find out that there's a method to her madness and why she wants to connect so personably to the world. But she's also a little more ruthless and willing to go through with the sacrifice to prove herself to her father and to her country. You set that up perfectly because I love that your first book has this really specific hook in terms of the plot, this race across the desert with this human sacrifice to figure out who's going to be in control of the country. And I can imagine it was probably a little bit tricky following that up with a book that 
continues the story, but does it in sort of a different way, especially in terms of plot. And I think with this book, you walked that line really, really well of telling the same story while changing what's happening around them. I was just wondering, did you plot out the full story when you were writing the first book, or did you come up with what happened next after The Kinder Poison was finished? Well, thank you. Yeah, I didn't actually know there was going to be a second book until I got to the end of The Kinder Poison, the first draft, and I realized there was a lot more in this world and a lot more with the characters, especially with Costa's story, that I knew I needed to explore and kind of finish. So I definitely plotted then the second book after that, and we sold both of those to Razorbill. I wanted to talk a little bit about this general world you've created, and especially the magic systems you've developed, because I think they're really fun and original. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the inspiration for sort of the general magic system, and then I'm really curious to know how you picked which magic would go with which character. Oh, so with the magic system... When I build new worlds for a book, I'll always start with, like, architecture and clothes and food and, like, religions and stuff. And so with The Kinder Poison, it only made sense to me that the class system would be broken up with this magic system. And that just like in our real world where we have strengths that you're kind of born with or not, like your beauty or physical strength or even height can kind of differentiate you from other people. So I really saw that here, like, okay, well, maybe if you were a fire spinner, you could do one of the elements that could have an entertainment value, but also like a military application. So that might be something that would be more coveted and more desirable. Whereas poor Zaru, who has, uh, you know, she can talk to animals and that's really cool too. The animals don't always listen to her. And so it's not something that people are super like admirable about. So that kind of puts her down in the working classes. But then, of course, like the backbone of the kind of poison is kind of dismantling that and showing that, you know, the power or the magic that you're born with does not have to define what power or influence you have in the world or the power to bring change. So that was really kind of the backbone of the magic system there. As far as choosing magics for each one, Zaru, I wanted her to have something fun, but like nurturing that I think the reader could really relate with. And I just think it would be cool to talk to animals. Like I'd love to actually, okay, I do talk to my animals, but they don't talk back. So I would really love to be able to understand what my cat is thinking. So I just thought that would be a fun magic to explore. The other ones, costas I can't speak into too much because there's a mystery surrounding that. But he obviously has kind of a darker magic to begin with because of his darker character. Jet, I just thought sound as like a weapon was just really cool. And I wanted to go a little bit outside of the box with not just doing like pure elemental magics that is there in the world too. But I wanted to kind of explore some things that I didn't see as much. And then Sakira's, I just, she needed to have something sassy and but I also wanted her to be powerful. And so her magic, you know, her ability to write spells, she can kind of be sassy with her paintbrush. So that's kind of how I picked those out for them. And I love how it all makes sense together, but everyone really does have, as you were explaining, really different powers to use and work with. And I I did, when I first realized that she had animal talking abilities, I was like, that's an awesome power. What are people, why is everyone telling her that she's not helpful? This is so cool. She can talk to all the animals. And it tur- you're right, it does turn out to be incredibly helpful as she's going along. And I love that. I think those were really well chosen and and make a lot of sense for the characters, but also do add this element of mystery to everybody, too. 
even when you figure out how one person's power works, that doesn't mean you necessarily know how the others work, so you get to, like, keep discovering as you go, which is a lot of fun, especially, I think, with magic. I personally love Zaru's character. I think she is such a great narrator and has such a witty and specific voice that you don't necessarily see coming. Very different than maybe what you'd expect from somebody who is going to be a human sacrifice. I find myself reading your books laughing out loud sometimes at what she says or her reactions because I have moments where I'm like, that's exactly how I would respond if I was in this wildly insane situation with these princes and I don't know what's happening. And she just says that exact thing you're thinking of. I was hoping you could talk a little bit about developing that humor, especially in these moments where you maybe wouldn't expect it. I wish I could tell you that I fully understood how to put this in there because sometimes my friends will bring the book to me after they've read and they're like, I really appreciate your thread of humor. Like, I love these funny lines. And they point these things out and I'm like, those aren't jokes. She's just talking. Like, what do you mean? These are funny. And then I'm like, but what about this one? That's like a joke I thought about a long time and put in here. And they're like, no, that's not funny. I don't know what you're talking about. So I'm not entirely sure how this happens, but I do know that I really like to take in humor and comedy in the media that I consume. So I really love like Pirates of the Caribbean, Zombieland, like Emperor's New Groove. Um, I really like TV shows like Big Bang Theory. So I just really like to, you know, my favorite shows always have humor in them. And I think I've taken in enough of it now that it can kind of start coming through naturally in my work too. But I do try to be deliberate about some of it because I just, that's what I enjoy taking in. So that's what I enjoy writing out. Um, and I think with fantasy, too, just like you pointed out, everything is so sensationalized in fantasy. Like, you don't just get your heart broken. Like, someone literally stabs you in the heart. Everything is 10 out of 10. And so I think just calling attention to that in the book also gives me a few more opportunities for humor in that way. Yeah, absolutely. I think the humor comes from what would happen if you were in a fantasy story and you, like, real like she notices. She's not just like oh, it's it's all fine that these princes are fighting over me and we're in the desert and I might die. She's like, what the heck is happening? <laughs> like, why is this my life? What's going on? And that's so much where the humor comes from. Because you're like, no, that is, it's genuinely insane what's happening to this girl and, and she sees it. It's some relatability too. It makes you feel like that could be me. Like, this isn't some otherworldly fantasy character. It's like, no, that that is exactly what I would do in her situation. And that's something else I really love about her as a character is that not only is she smart and funny and continues fighting even in moments where you're like, man, she's having a day, but she's found herself in this really epic story and she knows it. Like she is very aware that she is suddenly like in the storybook and there's these really beautifully meta moments where she'll comment on how things are not going the way she thought they would based on stories that she's heard. It's this great subversion that I was hoping you could talk a little bit about taking those tropes or, or those expectations. I think at one point she like points out that someone's having like an evil monologue. And I was just like, yes, this is <laughs> this is everything. This is perfect. I was hoping you could talk a little bit about putting that in and including that in your story. Yeah. So that idea definitely came from Zaru's love of these traveler's tales and like her expectations that are set by like all these stories she's heard. So I think even us as readers, you know, we read this great rom-com and we're like, man, why can't I just get whisked off to Europe and like meet the man in my dreams and we fall in love and suddenly he's a prince and now I'm a queen. You just want all these things to happen. 
and magic is such a literal part of her world, she's like, well, why not? Why wouldn't this be able to happen? These are all true stories. And then she gets into it and she's like, wait a minute, this is not what I was promised. And nothing looks the way it's supposed to. You know, there's a point where, you know, maybe she's following Costa around to check up on him and stuff. And from a distance, maybe that looks like she's concerned about his well-being. But in reality, they're like trying to destroy each other. And it's nothing is as it seems. And she's just so disappointed in all of this stuff that was supposed to happen and was promised to her. And none of it's happening. And I love in this book, too, she really points out, because I think in the first book, they're kind of isolated. They're in this race and they're they're in the desert and there's not a Greek chorus or like a community watching them. Whereas in this book, they're more in society and in the palace and you see more of what the outside world is looking in on them. And I love in this book that you talk about how rumors would spread and how she sort of has these moments where she's like, oh, that's how that story came to be. That's why people like me hearing this story telephone for like the 15th time would be like, well, of course they're madly in love with each other when in reality they want to murder each other. So it's fine. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Got a lot more to talk about with Natalie. We'll continue to catch up with her right after this break. This episode of Bookmarked is brought to you by Libro FM. Get two books for the price of one with your first month of membership using the code BOOKSTACKED. Libro FM has the same audiobooks at the same price as that other audiobook store. You know who. But when you purchase from Libro FM, you're purchasing audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. Be part of a different story and support your community. Again, use promo code BOOKSTACKED when you start your membership at Libro.fm. Or check the show notes for a quick link to get started. Offer only valid for new members in the U.S. and Canada. Now, we've talked about him a couple times. I don't think I can talk to you and not bring up Costa. He's... People have way too many opinions about him to not discuss him, just in general. (laughs) So I was actually a little bit late to reading The Kinder Poison. I read it at the end of last year, at the end of 2020. And I had seen on book Instagram and book Twitter and all these different places, all these Team Costa posts. So I went in thinking he was going to be like the romantic hero, and I was very wrong. So I was very shocked when I read the book, and, and he's genuinely very villainous and does some really terrible things. He's a really dark character. Were you surprised to see how much fans encouraged the idea of of him and Zaru getting together? I mean, I thought there would definitely be some readers who would like them together because he's the kind of villain who also teeters on the edge of redemption. And you really see that when he and Zaru are together, like this good person that he could be, like this entire good future that he could give to other people. But I was not prepared for it to be like a movement. It's grown into its own entity. It's completely out of control. But I'm also so grateful to these fans because they are fantastic cheerleaders and have made the lead up to this release a lot of fun. So it's been really interesting to me to see that build and grow. But I I did not think it was going to be such a thing at all. And I love that he does have these moments where you can see the good or you could see the potential for good maybe but he also doesn't have any easy redemption there's no moment where he like makes the decision you're rooting for he sticks to the fact that he has his own agenda and his own plan and 
I think also something you do really well in these books is talk about the power that how we are raised has on us. And the fact that these three heirs, while they were all raised in the same situation, were raised in really different ways and what that has the power to create in their lives. Yeah, for sure. So I actually I wanted to talk a little bit, too, about the religious elements of your story. The sort of religious system of this world is this multi-god system. Another thing I really love about your storytelling is that in your books, there's this question of, do the gods have a direct hand in what's happening or are the characters controlling things, but they're blaming it on the gods and some people are believing it? I think sometimes when you get a story like that, there's kind of like a clear answer one way or another. But with your stories, it's a lot murkier and it's a lot harder to be like, well, maybe that, but maybe not. I don't know. And I just thought it was really relatable because I think in the real world, our choices really do have consequences, but we also can't rule out when things work out really well or fate sort of steps in. I was wondering if that was something that came from your life or sort of how you developed that religious system. Yeah, for sure. So especially like as a Christian, I'm always looking at my own life and just trying to decide, like, am I on the right path? Am I doing the right thing? Am I putting the right message in my books? Am I even doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Am I still spending enough time with my family? But then on the other side, too, it's like, well, maybe, you know, if there's a grander plan here that's executing out, maybe it's okay to just kind of let go. And, you know, if I make a mistake, then that's okay because that is guiding me toward where I'm supposed to be or it's guiding me toward something better. But then you're also like, but I kind of want control and I want to make, you know, sure that I'm doing what I want here. So it's definitely like a question that I kind of go back and forth with and try to explore in my own life. So for sure, then it kind of bleeds into my work and try to, to ask those same questions there as well. I would imagine that came pretty early on in the process of developing this world and these characters because of how much a part it plays and what sets off the entire adventure. Yeah, I think religion is so infused into any civilization, but especially these ancient ones, when we're talking about like human sacrifice, it really is a motivator for them. And I think these characters, too, are trying to wrestle with how much their fate is in their own control. And there's even one of the princes who kind of is losing his faith, asking those questions, I think it's just a very human, a human thing to do that I like to put into my books. I really like that it does continue on in the second book. There are still choices that seem to be coming from the gods, but need to be confirmed by the human population. And I also, I like that choice is never, is always an element of it. Like there's always something that your characters can do to make their own decisions or to have their own free will. It's it's never an either or situation, which I think is is important in, in that kind of story. Absolutely. I think also along with these questions of what's controlling the consequences, you also in your books have this really strong theme of trust. Who can you trust? Who should you not trust? But even more importantly, like, does trust make you a good or bad person or does trust make you a good or bad leader? I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how that element of the story came in. Yeah, trust definitely seems to work both ways because trusting the wrong person can definitely get you into a bad situation and trusting the right person can do great things. But if you've been hurt by people in the past who have betrayed that trust in however way you have perceived it, 
that prevents you from trusting in the future. And so I think there is this theme in the books of kind of letting yourself go from that and starting to learn to trust again and figuring out who it is okay to trust and, and when when you can do that. Even especially in Cruelest Mercy, that lack of trust again more on Zaru's part starts breaking things down again. So yeah, that's something that they will constantly wrestle with for sure. I love that that was such a big part of The Cruelest Mercy. It's not all, we made it out alive, all is forgiven, let's figure out what to do next. So much of it is the pain and the sort of trauma of what came before in the relationships. And how do you come out the other side when you're forced to work with someone who has betrayed that trust? Again, just the honest reactions. I think there are a lot of moments where it would be really easy to read her as paranoid, but you completely understand why she is as frustrated as she is or why she is sort of as hellbent on finding what she's looking for. And you totally get all sides of the argument, even if you are sort of rooting for, for one way or the other. In the end, your books really encourage both the characters and, and by extension, the readers to rethink who has agency and who has power in a situation. The story really shows us that anyone who's willing to sort of embrace their gifts and think outside the box can become the hero, no matter what the story is, no matter how wild and out there it feels like their situation is. Are there takeaways you're hoping readers can get from Zaru's story? You know, the thread that I really try to keep alive through all of these books is this sense of kindness as a poison, as something that does make an impact, even if you don't see it at first, and how it can truly change things, whether it's changing it in other people or for you directly, and that ultimately good will come of it. Because I think it's really easy in real life to despair that things like kindness and mercy can never be as powerful as money or status or any of these traditionally celebrated strengths. So I guess I'm just really hoping to show that it's truly just as valuable and important. You know, don't give up on it. There's so much power still in gentler strengths. I think that sums up Zari's a character and her story really well, that she does have this specific power, but so much of what she's able to accomplish comes from the way she treats the people around her and the way that she shows kindness and mercy to people who maybe aren't expecting it or don't totally know how to embrace it, which is always an yeah. interesting thing to watch and experience. Where can our listeners learn more about you and your books? You can learn more about me at nataliemaybooks.com. And then I'm also on Instagram at by Natalie May. And then I'm on Twitter as well by Natalie May. Well, thank you so much for being with us today, Natalie. I had such a great time speaking with you. Yay, thank you. Yeah, of course. And thanks to all of you for listening. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter. We're at bookmarkedya. You can also follow Bookstacked on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you liked the show, don't forget to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts can follow me on Instagram at PluckyBookmark or on Twitter at ChelseaRegan17. I hope you enjoyed the show and we will see you next time. Bye-bye.